With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back to the Missing Maura Murray podcast. How are you tonight, Lance? Excellent. How are you? Doing well. Tonight we have a really interesting story for the audience. What do you say? Interesting in the way of um, the Wild West mentality that uh, exists pretty much everywhere in this country, but surprisingly in the north country of New Hampshire, where this story is uh, centered upon. Um there is a we'll give the link up, but there is a ridiculous story and an amazing article from Boston Magazine about what we're going to get into tonight. The uh, the Bruce McKay, Greg Floyd, Lico Kenny incident unravels like something that Sergio Leone would would have directed. I'm sorry, somebody more violent, somebody like <laughs> Tarantino would have directed. Yeah, it is a, a really great article, and uh, the story does remind you of a Western, no doubt about it. But it is from 2007, and from Franconia, New Hampshire. So you say, well, what is this doing on the Missing Mora Mari podcast? Well, I, we thought that it was just a good sort of indicator of what life is like up there, and what kind of things can happen in that area of the world, even today. Sure, and... Bruce McKay's name comes up uh, every every so often as you look at the police transcripts for that night, and there is a suicide call that he's dispatched to, along with, I think, two or three other police officers, all of them dispatched at the same time, all of them en route at the same time, all of them except one arrives, and all of them are cleared at the same time. The person who has the missing information there is Officer McKay. So when you look at the dispatch logs, they all have timestamps of dispatched, en route, arrived, and cleared. Bruce McKay has dispatched, en route. There is nothing there where it should be arrived, but he he is documented as cleared. This is something that Aaron Deborah Larkin was talking about when we had her on the last time. Also, for this episode, we are going to have on our co-host from our new podcast called Crawl Space. 
you haven't heard the podcast yet, what are you waiting for? Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Link will be in the show notes. Our guest is Chloe Cantor. She sort of acts as like our in-house psychology expert on Crawl Space. She is a psychiatric counselor, and she proves very useful to help Lansonize bickering, but also to psychologically analyze the cases that we cover. You and I are kind of geeks when it comes to the, the, the psychological headspace of the people that are involved in this case. And we have all, uh, all, the, all the cases, really. All the cases. Yeah, anything that, that we're looking into. I, I think that whole like question of why somebody's doing what they're doing, and not only why, but but why is it a why? You know, like how deep do you go, um, and how complicated do you go, or how simple is it? And Chloe is a really good. Um, she has a, a lot of really good information and a lot of uh, logical feedback when it comes to that. So let's get into the timeline. Also, we want to welcome our new sponsor, Audible, for this episode. So please check out audible.com slash Mora for a free audiobook with a 30-day trial at audible.com slash Mora. Okay, let's set the scene, Lance. Franconia, New Hampshire. Right outside of the White Mountains. Pretty good tourist hub. Population 1,104 residents as of 2010. At approximately 6 p.m. on May 11, 2007, Lico Kenny clocked out of work at his new job at the local Agway and headed down Route 116 in his rundown 1984 Toyota Celica with his friend, roommate, and co-worker, Caleb McCauley. They stopped to pick up a handle of vodka and a bottle of cranberry juice as they intended to invite friends over to party. Now, just a quick piece of background on Lico Kenny. He's he's 24 years old. He lives in Easton, New Hampshire, which is right outside that uh, that um, Franconia, Woodsville, that area. He lived in a cabin on his family's compound. It's the Tamarack Tennis Camp. And if you look into that, it, it, it definitely had the impression of a countercultural type compound. Corporal Bruce McKay of the Franconia Police Department pulled over Lico Kenny on his way home. And these two guys, and actually the whole Kenny family, have been feuding with Bruce McKay for years at this point. Right. It stems back to the Kenny family and their relation to Lico Kenny was a cousin of Bodie Miller. And there was. If you read about Lico Kenny, if you if you look at the um, the dashboard camera videos of the first interaction between Bruce McKay and Lico Kenny, uh, Bruce McKay pulled over. Uh, actually, didn't pull him over. Bruce McKay arrived to a, a public kind of like side parking lot in uh, late January of 2003, and that was their first encounter. Lico is sitting in his car and he's waiting. Um, not really sure what he's waiting for, but he's certainly not breaking any laws. And you can look at the video of the uh, dashboard cam on YouTube. And the, the the feud between the Kennys and the McKays, it it feels to me it stems to that, that counterculture. Like Bruce McKay had a certain way that he wanted to, his business done in that town. And the Kennys were completely different. Uh, and they didn't care either. Um, they were They were kind of renegades. 
So there was already there was already a rift between the between the uh, the the, the hard nosed McKay and the I'll use the word again the countercultural Kennys. And it was so bad that Lico did not want to be pulled over by Corporal McKay. He wanted other police to be present if he were to be tied up with McKay. If there were to be some kind of police situation, he wanted another officer there because Lico Kenny did not trust Bruce McKay. Right. And does that stem from the January 26, 2003 first encounter? I believe that stems from it. Uh, Lico Kenny is his license is confiscated. He keeps he repeatedly asks what he did wrong. He said, I'm just sitting here and he's a hothead. You can see it in the video. He gets out of the car. He starts arguing back. McKay has no no patience. He doesn't suffer people like that very well. Um, his responses are very short. They're very direct. They're get back in the car. You're not getting your license back. I make the rules. Get back in your car. And that's just that's just firing Lico up even more. And and he's you can you can see him get more and more frustrated. But ultimately, there's nothing he can do. So once everything transpires, and we'll get into the details of of what transpires the first time. After that, he made an arrangement with the police that any time he came across McKay or McKay pulled him over, he was to have another officer. Give people orders. Who gives you the right to do this? This is a free country. You 
you don't have the right to harass me. Give me my license back. I recommend you go sit back in your I car. I recommend you give me my license back because I'm driving home. You're I don't not going anywhere right now. Oh, yeah. Why? Why? Because I don't have the right to be pulled in here. You're going to tell That's me I don't have I the said. right to be pulled in here? I asked you for your driver's license. Are you going to tell me that I don't have the right to go home now? Right now, you don't have the right. Why you're don't being I have the right seized. to go home? My mom is a Because you're being seized. I was well, waiting have here to wait. for a little while to see if my friends were going to come home from a Super Bowl. From the Super Bowl. I have the right to be here. You don't have the right to give me orders. You don't have the right to put your hands on me. You don't have the right to take my driver's license. And you don't have the right to keep me here without a good reason. Is there another cop coming here? Oh, yeah. Is there a state cop coming here? Well, I don't know. Cop. I'm requesting that you call a state cop. That's good for you. That. No, I don't. What kind of cop are you? You make the rules? You get to do whatever you want to whoever you want and push people around because you have a badge? You're not here to Where be Where are you people. from, Lico? I'm from here. I don't have to be pushed around. I don't have to be threatened because I'm waiting here. Do I? You have to wait here, and you should Why be waiting in your wait car. Here? Why I'm not going to explain any more to you. You have you to, to get into your car. Why are you harassing me? You Why need to are get into you your harassing car. me? You need to get into your car. If I get into my car, I'm driving home. I'm asking you for my fucking license back. Go sit in your car. You don't car. have the right to harass me Go like this. Go sit in your car. You do not have the right to harass me like this. You going to give me my license back? No, sir. Why are you not going to give me my license back? I'm going to go out and speak to you and get a real So back to May 11th, 2007, Bruce McKay pulled over Lico Kenny, asked him for his license and registration without offering a reason for the stop. And Lico was, uh, was very upset at this. He was not going to do it. So he started making phone calls. He wanted witnesses. He was calling his compound where he lived. Uh, Caleb McCauley, who was the passenger in the car, said he had never seen anyone so scared in his life. And then Kenny just floors it. He floors it to try to get away from Bruce McKay. He gets about a mile and a half down the road until McKay catches up, gets ahead of Kenny, and angles his car in front of his, causing Kenny to slam on his brakes. McKay gets nose-to-nose with Kenny, motions him back onto a dirt patch. Kenny is backing up at this point. McKay pushes his car into sort of like it, it, what is it a tractor or something that he yeah can't... it's it's kind of like a it's like a dirt open driveway and then there's uh yeah there's some tractors there and it's more like overgrown um overgrown grass McKay was trying to back him up so he could trap the car from not going anywhere else right yeah you can see it in the dashboard video yeah yeah it kind of I don't I'm not making a joke here it kind of reminded me of of Mad Max from like the car point of view. Uh, driving up and you see this car getting bigger and bigger, bigger and bigger, and then he he overtakes the car and he slows down, and then stops for longer than longer than I worked it out in my head. He does a three or four point turn in the road in order to become nose to nose with uh with Lico. Now in that time when I was watching the video, I'm wondering like if Lico was running, why why wasn't he throwing it into reverse? And whipping backwards into that driveway and then pulling out. In the background, you can see a truck, and we'll get to the truck 
uh, once we get deeper into the story. I'm wondering if that truck had anything to do with it. That that was the reason why he wasn't uh, – Lico wasn't going in reverse because that – Bruce McKay position angles his, his uh, police car right nose to nose in the middle of the street. And you can see Lico in the uh, driver's seat holding up his hand before he gets pushed into – before he backs into the um, – into the into the dirt road into the yeah um as if to say like i get you i like i get it and then he starts backing up and yeah it's it's interesting to see the the car push him even further once he's in there he's pushing him in he's making sure he's got nowhere to go mckay gets out of his car approaches Lico kenny's vehicle on foot and without saying a word he blasts pepper spray into Lico kenny's face it's so interesting for a few seconds, it, it blasts it. it yep. It's got to be very painful. Doesn't even hesitate. And he turns away without saying anything. He turns and walks away just instantly. Right. Just and he's blasts walking. it for a couple seconds, turns yep. around. And he can't walk in front of his car because his car is touching Lico's car. So when he gets out, he's walking behind his own car and coming around. So when after he blasts him with the pepper spray, he turns around. And he's walking the other way, like on the passenger side of the car to go around the back. This is when the story gets especially crazy. Lico Kenny reaches under his seat and he pulls out a forty-five, and he fires seven shots toward Bruce McKay. Yep. I think he had that gun almost ready to go. That I don't think Bruce saw it, but Bruce turns around the second he is off frame, that gun's out. I mean, yeah, it happens very quick. It happens so quick. And I'm trying to think like if he hadn't been pepper sprayed, he would have like that timing to get under his seat to get it. But I think he probably had it like under his leg or something at the time because he got pepper sprayed and it was it was like he grabbed it, made the decision and he shot. McKay, who was uncharacteristically not wearing his bulletproof vest this day, was hit four times in the side, once in his forearm. He collapsed on the road, dropped his gun, which had been pulled from his holster. Kenny then drives over Bruce McKay uh, twice, the second time resulting in McKay's body being stuck in the Celica's undercarriage. And you can see that um, Caleb, the passenger, has made the statement that he wasn't trying to run him over. I mean, I'm not, I'm not defending the murder of a police officer at all. Um, I mean, he'd already shot at him seven times. He knew he hit him. I don't, I don't think Lico was that sadistic that he was going to drive him over i think he had a bunch of pepper spray in his eyes and he just drove forward you can see in the video that he i mean it's not like it's not a deliberate backing up and turning and and getting the car out of that position uh i I just think he couldn't see him i'm not by any means defending it he certainly waits a few seconds too before leaving maybe like 10 seconds after he shoots him maybe maybe it's just this incredible moment of shock or or panic or something and he's got pepper spray and his friends probably screaming and he's probably got the car in reverse and it's spinning yeah plus the other characters coming up he the other character must have been coming up at the time so but let me just say i I don't know that he didn't intentionally run him over oh i'm not saying he kind of looked like he could have he could have but at the same time he's i mean i can't imagine he was thinking straight with the pepper spray after just shooting him. He, I, I think he just wanted to drive forward. He wanted to get out. But, you know, who knows? Either way, it didn't really matter. The second time he ran him over, McKay got stuck in the undercarriage of the car, which is particularly gruesome. I'm pretty sure he was still alive at that point. 
And now this story gets another layer of crazy. Under two minutes after this encounter began, teenager Gregory Floyd and his namesake, father and former U.S. Marine Gregory Floyd, arrived on the scene in a Silverado pickup truck. The elder Floyd picked up McKay's gun off of the ground, checked it that it was loaded, and approached the passenger side door of Kenny's car. Floyd saw Kenny desperately trying to clear a bullet that was jammed in his gun because he saw Floyd coming near him. Like, how wild west is that? Yeah. Of course the bullet's jamming at that point. Of course he's fumbling around for it while a, while a maniac happens upon the scene. And I'm not, I'm not, like, I'm not, I'm choosing my words carefully when I say maniac. Floyd then shot through the passenger's side window hitting Kenny in the neck and head. Floyd then held the gun to McCauley's head and demanded that he pick up Lico's gun. Now Caleb is sitting in the passenger seat, right? Right. He he knelt over, sort of put his head uh, on his legs, on his knees, kind of crouched down right before Floyd started shooting. And it's probably a good thing because he may have gotten shot himself. What a fucking terror. What a terror. I mean, they were, they were, they had an unopened bottle of vodka and some cranberry juice in the car because they had just picked that up to go to a party later on that night. That was what was in Caleb's head. We're going to a party later. What is going on 10 minutes later? So Floyd kills Lico Kenny and does not shoot Caleb McCauley, the passenger. They wait for police to arrive. And Greg Floyd was never charged for the death of Lico Kenny. Okay, so let's bring on Chloe Cantor. Chloe, how's it going tonight? I'm doing great. How are you guys? Doing awesome. Yeah, talking about one of our um, favorite stories, and favorite is a weird word to choose because there's so much death and blood in it, but uh, it is just an unbelievable story. Surreal that it happened only, what, 10 years ago? I know. I am, I'm dying to talk to you, Chloe, about this because there is there is so much stuff here about, uh, about Bruce McKay, Lico Kenny, Greg Floyd, it's like the like the irresistible force meets the immovable object, and you know they're all they're all bad in their own in their own right. There's no this is this is a western where you you just root for the best bad guy, and it's not a story of like black and white who's to blame because it's not so clear. It's a very pretty nuanced and complicated situation comprised of three very complicated people. So where do you want to start? Do you want to start with with Greg Floyd? Yes, I think we start with Greg Floyd because I think he is one of the reasons we are talking about this case in the first place. And why is that? Because Rick Forcier made a claim months after Moore's disappearance that he saw somebody who matched the description of her, possibly matched the description of her, out by Hummingbird Lane, about four to five miles away from the accident scene, which is where Greg Floyd lived at the time. 
Okay, so what we're saying is the sighting that Rick Forcier had that he told police about. Well, told the people in the store, and then police contacted him. Eventually told police about it. Yep. That story, if true, if Rick really did see someone that night and that person was Mora, that would put Mora extremely close to this guy, Greg Floyd's house, that night, the night Mora went missing. Yeah, that's that's correct. Okay. That's correct. So I don't want to speculate too much more on that, that, you know, we can please email us if you want to, tweet us, whatever you want. But that's why we heard of this case. Right. This isn't for speculation purposes. Like Greg Floyd might have been any uh, – had any involvement in Moore's case. We do not know that. All this is doing is saying it's one of those layers when we first started doing this podcast with the people involved in this case. You can't even put a possible sighting of Mora near anywhere up there that doesn't have her close to a maniac. Even a possible sighting that probably wasn't her – it it still lands her at Hummingbird Lane, which was where Greg Floyd li- lives. And then when you look into Greg Floyd, you go, oh, my God, <laughs> this guy is a terror. I think a good place to start when we're talking about Floyd is how that evening ended. According to Caleb McCauley, after Floyd killed Kenny, he pointed his gun to McCauley's head and insisted that he pick up Lico's gun, which he refused to do. And then he ordered Caleb out of the car and sat on where he sat on the ground until the police arrived. Caleb didn't want to pick up the gun because he was afraid that Floyd was intentionally trying to get Caleb's fingerprints on the gun as a justification to shoot him too. Totally. If if I'm in that situation, God forbid I'm ever in that situation and someone says so I mean, just imagine that. Like he shoots him through the window, glass is shattering all over this this kid. Uh, his friend is probably bleeding on him. Where did this dude come from, first of all, is going through my mind, right? Where did this guy come from? And then he's got the gun to his head, and, and it's – we keep referencing it. It's like a movie. It's like he stole the lines out of a, out of a Western. Pick up the gun, and, and yeah, I'm going to say no. And then what he says, pick up the gun, fucker. What? And then he still says no because he knows the second he touches that gun, he's dead. Why? why? Why do you think that? Floyd wants to kill him. He wouldn't tell him to pick up the gun and have the gun to his head. He wants to shoot him. Are you saying that Greg Floyd is an opportunistic killer? Saying he had an opportunity there. He had two opportunities there. Particularly when, triumphantly, when the police arrived, he declared that Lico Kenny was the 43rd person he killed. So Caleb was right to be afraid that he would try to kill him just because of the opportunity presenting itself. When the police arrived, an officer pulled his gun on Greg Floyd, right? Because he shows up and there's a man with a gun and a dead cop and a dead civilian. And Floyd says to the officer, easy, son, I'm quicker than you. That is – and I want to get into this a lot with you. That along with him arriving on the scene with his son in the vehicle, Greg Floyd arriving on the scene with his son in the vehicle – Seeing a cop get shot at least four times, seven times, you know, at least seeing or hearing seven shots, he arrives on the scene, gets out. The cop is hit with a car twice. He's stuck under the under the car. He's in the undercarriage of the car. He picks up the police officer's gun, checks it to make sure it's loaded. 
He doesn't come to the scene and start yelling like, "Stop! What are you doing?" You know, he's got and he's got a mindset that's like razor sharp, and he checks the gun to make sure it's loaded so he can go over and shoot him. So any question that he had an intention to kill Caleb is, I, I take that at like maybe point zero two percent that he was just putting a scare into him because he threatened the police officer that showed up and said, "Easy, son, I'm quicker than you." And then tumbleweed rolled by. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I don't want to defend this guy, really. but uh, So he killed someone who shot a cop. And then a cop shows up. And we know what happens sometimes. Uh, Obviously, that's been happening a lot the past few years. Uh, Police officers shooting people who really shouldn't be shot at. Um, Now, in this case, Floyd has a gun. So he's obviously a very good... A person to be shot at by a police officer. Sure. Yep. For all that police officer knows, Greg Floyd was the one who killed Corporal McKay. Oh, obviously. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I have no no problem with that. And if that was me and I had managed to arrive on the scene, if I'm Greg Floyd or a person who arrives on the scene and diffuses the situation by shooting the person who shot and ran over the police officer – and the other and the other police officers show up. I'm putting that gun to the ground and I'm putting my hands up and I'm saying I didn't I you know I'm not I'm probably not saying anything. I'm getting on the ground. I'm letting I'm letting the, I'm letting them talk to me after. I am certainly not still holding my gun. He's not aiming it. I'm certainly not still holding my gun and telling the police officer <laughs> I'm quicker than you. I'm certainly not instigating anything. What else about Greg Floyd, Chloe? Well, I mean, the statement that he made to the police is clear that he's unusually fearless and unconcerned with potentially fatal consequences to his actions, which is an antisocial trait. Um, but for some history about him, he had a conviction of selling PCP and marijuana in Georgia, which made it illegal for him to own the two firearms that he had. Um, he didn't use his own firearm to um, kill Lee Kenny, but... He still had guns, which was um, a violation of that term. So that's something to note. Also, back in 1997, he threatened to have his dog attack a utility meter reader who had showed up on his property. And when the state troopers arrived to arrest Floyd, Floyd sent his son to get a gun and then shouted, I know you wear vests, so I'd have to put it right between the eyes. A couple of quick things I wanted to note. His kid was in the car. Like his, not only in the car, his kid was driving. What it, What do you guys make of that? And the other thing about his car, which I should say truck, because it was a truck, you can see it in the dashboard video. Watch the dashboard video linked to on this, on this feed. You can see the Silverado moving and stopping to watch what happened. You can see it. Greg Floyd and his son, they watched the whole thing go down. So what what kind of person, Chloe, psychologically speaking, is going to do something like this in front of their kid? Even though I, I understand some people can view it as a heroic act, um, but the car is in the video. Like, they could have just driven by. Like, obviously, this guy was itching for a confrontation, right? Am I reading that wrong? I think in Greg Floyd's case, it was probably a little bit more than just human natural curiosity. He seemed to want to get involved. Um, He 
his son was driving, so he must have instructed his son, hey, let's, you know, stick around and check out this, this crime scene, or what was about to be a crime scene. So this is someone who, who is interested in getting involved in something like that, which I think says a lot. Someone who is looking for that kind of trouble. I think he probably he's a type of guy just based on what I've seen in the videos and with the uh, the, the court videos where he's freaking out and stuff and and just what's quoted here. He just seems like the type of guy. I think he wanted it to happen. Yeah, I mean, he was proud of what he did. He, he's proud of killing people. That was a shining moment for him. That's honestly, that's what it seemed like. Well, do you guys think it's? possible that he's killed that many people he says 43 he said other things that are definitely not true so i i wouldn't hold that statement to fact but i i'm sure he's killed before like what what else did he say that was not true was it the government stuff yeah when he was brought in when the police asked him what he did for a job he said that he works in very specific government like he works in very specific parts of the government that he could never talk about because it would be too dangerous for everyone to know. So just automatically saying something that is obviously not true and sounds really paranoid. Why is that obviously not true? He's telling members of the government, like figures of law enforcement, that he's working for a department that they don't know about. Are, it's you, just... are you saying that if he did work for parts of the government that they shouldn't know about, he wouldn't even say that at all? If you work for yes, these things, it, that, if you work for these departments that were so like highly secretive and 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 sensitive that they would have put him up with a different job in that town, so he could simply say I work for this job and not even, yeah, it's a psychotic. And I'm sorry, maybe I'm using the word wrong. He 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 was a former marine. He saw how things worked within the military. Um, saw how things worked within government on some level. And perhaps he developed a bit of a delusion um, based on uh, his experience in the Marines. And I think that when someone starts talking about like being in a secret government position, that raises a lot of red flags that it's just not true and delusional. It's a pretty paranoid kind of narrative. Right, because if you're in there, you're trained to not talk about them. Working with patients with psychosis and patients that have just delusional mindsets about what they do. Like that's a pretty common one working for the government. Now, psychologically and, and Lance feel free to answer as well. Um, psychologically speaking, do you think if Mora were to have stumbled upon Greg Floyd's property that night, that he's the kind of person that would open fire on someone on his property? Yes. Oh, I definitely, I definitely think he would, or his son would, or some member of his family would open fire. That being said, I don't, I don't think that Mora would have stumbled on his property. So, yeah, without speculating anymore, I think that that I think we're probably done with Greg Floyd, and we can move on to Bruce McKay. Unless anyone's got anything else. No, other than Google, uh, Google Greg Floyd. Look up some of the videos. Look up the court videos. Get a real sense of who this guy is. What's the court hearing that he was a part of? And he's out in the lobby. And I mean, he's he's a, yeah, he he's he's yelling and and uh, yeah, foaming at the mouth in in a uh, uh, as he's kind of um, pulled out of a courtroom in one video. Uh, Christopher King actually has has a uh, a lot of videos on 
this situation and Greg Floyd, and he's right, writes a blog on the situation as well. Uh, we have reached out to Chris King. Actually, we wanted to have him on, so we would still like to talk to him on Crawl Space if uh, if he's out there. Uh, so, Chris, if you're listening or if anyone knows him, please put us in contact. Okay, so let's talk about Corporal Bruce McKay. What do we know about this guy, Chloe? Well, um, he was 48 at the time of his death in 2007, and he had been a police officer for 12 years. He had actually begun his career in law enforcement working part-time in Haverhill, but then became a full-time officer in Franconia. Um, He wasn't exactly well-liked in the community. He had a Hitler mustache and a gotcha vanity plate on his Nissan, and there were a bunch of rumors about misconduct from McKay swirling around the community. One of the stories being that he pulled over a a 79-year-old woman for having an expired registration sticker, and after she told him that she was on her way home to make dinner for her family, he made her wait for two hours. And there was another case where he Why did he make her wait for two hours? People think that it was specifically because she said that she had plans to go home and make dinner and that he was trying to ruin her plans. What did he use as an excuse? I think he was probably waiting in his car for an excessive amount of time. You know, once you're pulled over like that, you have enough reasonable suspicion to detain them. So she wasn't free to leave, but he was probably taking his time doing whatever he was doing in the police car, making her wait. Two hours? Or whatever ticket. That's that's what the report says. I mean, and, and here's another one. He had every car towed in a lot by a river where children were celebrating their high school graduation. Just because. What? He towed every car of these high school kids that had just graduated and they were celebrating by frolicking by the river. He sees this and has all of their cars towed. Also, I just want to add that the chief of Franconia department doesn't really keep arrest records divided by officer. But according to the word around town, in 2006, McKay rang up over 300 stops Summary interrogations, drug searches. He pursued every infraction, no matter how petty, with bulldog ferocity. And the other two full-time cops in town reportedly collected just 11 stops, searches, and interrogations between the two of them. And I just want to say that is taken directly from the Boston Magazine article. The, the, the general consensus among police officers and, and townsfolk was that he had at least 300 of those. He, he had them all. Let's just say he, he was a fucking one-man show. Pretty overzealous, it seems to me. Um, I'd get a license plate that said gotcha, too. That's, that was his thing, I guess. He liked to get people, got pleasure out of it, at least. It seems to me. I know a lot of members of the community would describe him as a bully-type police officer, and I think most law enforcement officers join for altruistic reasons, but... I won't pretend that some cops aren't bullies, and I think that all of us have encountered, at least to very varying degrees, um, law enforcement officers that are being unnecessarily aggressive. And I think that certain people are drawn to the field. Um, cops, yeah, cops who are overly controlling and abusive of their power, they join the force because they want 
unconditional power, authority, and respect because I think it was denied to them at some point in life. Yeah, that's 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 a really interesting point. The type of people that go in that direction when they they become a police officer. Just recently, I've experienced two circumstances where police officers were extraordinarily courteous and went out of their way. And I thought to myself, this is exactly the opposite of everything I've been reading with with the Moore Murray case. Um, one of them was when we were there for the 13-year anniversary. The uh, state trooper who was controlling the traffic on 112 was was incredibly cool. Um, he 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 understood what was happening. He went out of his way to make conversation. The other situation just happened yesterday, where a coworker of mine was leaving work and. She had her transmission drop in her car, and it came to a complete, utter, not moving. The, this thing was done in the middle of uh, a very busy road, uh, exiting work. Um, and we called – she called work. We went up there. We called the police just because her her car was right in the middle of the road. It wasn't going to be moved, so we needed somebody to just be there with the lights on. And that officer was – I just kept – Harkening back to Mora, that officer was insanely cool about what he 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 pushed the car back with us. What's up? That's great. That's great, Lance. You know what? You've had some nice experiences with officers lately. That's fantastic. But the truth is, uh, per CBC, from an article about a year ago, police officers rank number seven in the list of jobs with the highest rates of psychopathy. So yes, those. Officers were not psychopaths, but if you are a psychopath, they could have been psychopaths, right? Okay, but the number seven job that you go into as a psychopath may be police officer. So we're looking at the ranks of jobs, and we say, what are the jobs that have the highest level or the highest um, people hired who have some form of psychopathy? And police officer is number seven. Well, yeah, let me just give a tiny bit of background, too, on some of the other things that are listed here because maybe it'll shed a little bit more light. Number one is a CEO. Number two is a lawyer. Number three could be us, media, TV, radio, could be us. Um, and number six is journalists, which also could be us. So we're not off the hook here. No, it's it's, uh, it's keep going. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess I'm saying is we're about as more as likely to be a psychopath because of what we're doing as any random police officer is likely to be a psychopath. I'm pretty sure counselors were among the least likely, so leave me out of it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hey, you're in now. You're in. Damn it. Damn it. So we're looking at at a common denominator of power, power and and ego, power and ego. Exactly. You know, a a CEO. So we call a CEO, I mean, even you're not getting to be president without power and ego. Right. Oh, don't go there, Lance. I'm saying president of a company, not the current person who's in the White House right now. This is yeah. Um, I know we're in news and politics in iTunes, but uh, let's let's not go a little. We go go real light on the politics part. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, But no, that's that that's a great. It's all of the ones that have some form of control, Uh, and you use your control and you use your power as justly as you see fit. Um, and if you're in a situation where it's simply a expired tag on a vehicle that's parked in a public area, if you don't have elements of, of 
psychosis. You don't take a license, and correct me if I'm wrong, Chloe, you don't take a license and and keep the person there without explaining to them what it is they did wrong when they've repeatedly asked what they did wrong. And and you say, I make the rules. I wouldn't say psychosis, but definitely um, psychopathy. I think... What's the difference? I'm so sorry. Oh, no, it's okay. It's actually a really common misconception um, that you are confused all the time. So psychopathy is a form of antisocial personality disorder, and it consists of um, impulsivity, irrationality and aggressiveness, reckless disregard for the safety of others, um, irresponsibility, lack of guilt and remorse. So it's more of a personality issue, while psychosis is defined by a detachment from reality, and that can manifest in a number of ways. It can come through hallucinations, which can be visual, tactile, it can be hearing voices, having delusions, or being grossly catatonic. So how do, how do, do so we're, I mean, we can safely say that McKay wasn't, I mean, he didn't, we can, right, he didn't have hallucinations, he was not catatonic. I mean, this is a very deliberate man. There is a great example of how Bruce McKay could have diffused a situation. Um, check it out in the show notes. It is a dash cam video of another traffic stop that he makes, and it is quite disturbing. I have a pretty strong stomach for things like this, but there's only so much like absolute terrified screaming you can hear from a woman before you just have to like take a break for a second. It it gets pretty intense, you know. He, he, he's got the pepper spray. He's nailing her with the pepper spray, and she is wailing. I read the rules. Put the shoe bars back in the car. Put them back in the car. Ma'am, don't touch me. You're under arrest. No, I'm not. Turn around, put your hands behind your back. Ma'am. Million dollar question though, does does this have anything to do with Maura Murray's disappearance or how can we even connect those dots in any way? The only reason, and like we said in the beginning, the reason why Bruce McKay is linked to this conversation is that police dispatch log where he is not accounted for. It's literally blocked out on the police dispatch log during the time and the same area when Maura's car got into the accident, and she subsequently went missing. Between that and and what Aaron Deborah Larkin was talking about last time we had her on was each call has, has a number. So it's number one, number two, number three, number four. He literally had nothing in between those two. He had to be somewhere. It was a, it was a sequential number that he went from this call to this call. But he didn't arrive at the first one. Okay, so how do we take that further? Well, that this is as far as I don't know if we can take it any further than what we're doing right now. This is a process of taking it further, I think, is okay. just saying, you know, and again, the characters involved in this case. You can't even just say that the police officer who was connected to Greg Floyd was not couldn't be somehow connected to Maura Murray. He very well could be. 
I think when we're talking about potential relevance to the case, it's important to kind of bring in the idea. There's some people theorize that Floyd's arrival to the scene regarding McKay and Kenny was an informal form of vigilante justice and intervention that perhaps Floyd was an official form of backup for McKay and that they had been working together. So it, it can indicate a, a relationship that's stronger than maybe we previously thought. Unofficial backup, like he had a um, an arrangement with him? That's what some people say. That's what some people think. And he had a scanner? Yeah. Got there awful fast. Why in God's name would a police officer want a person who is as unstable as Greg Floyd to assist, quote unquote, in anything that he's doing? I think Bruce McKay was unstable himself. And maybe Bruce McKay realized at this point the danger he puts himself in. And it's, it goes to the power thing again, right? The ego thing. If if he's the one out there and he's got 300 stops and he's taking the majority of the work and he is becoming the he's be, he's becoming the cowboy who is who is cleaning up the town it is not outside the realm of possibility that the other police officers were kind of getting tired of his shit so maybe he had to rely a little bit more on the street justice of the time Greg Floyd, you know, I know you have some infractions here and there. I'm going to over I'm going to look I'm going to look past those and keep the scanner in your car. There are there are reports that Bruce McKay's time in Franconia was a reign of terror. Those those are actual citizens those are actual civilians of of that town. They said Bruce McKay's time in Franconia was a reign of terror. What we're doing is trying to really break down something that probably has been broken down a lot, which is how the fuck did he get there? How the fuck did that guy, anybody else, right? Come on. Like anybody else would have shown up and probably like you said earlier, Tim, driven by, I probably would have watched and shit my pants, you know, anybody else for the most part would have, would have either driven by watched and waited or, or gone up like maybe some like, some some brave person would have gone up and tried to stop him from doing it. Like, hey, you got it. Like, stop. You know, you don't – maybe something like that would have happened. No, the one guy who was capable and had the wherewithal and was deliberate enough to pick up a gun from the cop who was still alive under the car. Look at it. Make sure it's loaded. Go around to the passenger side. Go around to the passenger side of the car so he could get the drop on the guy in the passenger seat too, just in case, and shoots him firing in well i think this was a pretty good breakdown of what happened um in the leco kenny bruce mckay greg floyd triangle of fate uh collision course as the uh, boston magazine article was named yeah seriously read that article it's it's not short it'll it might take you 15 minutes to read but it is outstanding it is outstanding it reads like a uh it reads like a like a quick a quick little pulp western um and and go do yourself a favor sorta i mean it's not really a favor but if you're into this case look up the um the dashboard cam video of the first incident that happened with Lico kenny and bruce mckay that one that happened on january 26 2003 uh take it take it you know absorb it the way you will um Try to see it from all angles. Uh, 
at one point during the uh, arrest of Liko Kenny in that video, Liko Kenny is screaming for anybody who can hear that he is going to be molested by police officers. He's also screaming to other police officers, what did I do? One of the police officers who arrived based on McKay's call responds to him and says, I don't know. Liko Kenny's getting beat down and is screaming, what did I do? He actually he actually grabs Bruce McKay by the balls. And Bruce McKay, it's really interesting. Bruce McKay, you can hear him say, he's got me by the balls or he's got my balls. And it's right around then that Liko Kenny is saying, what did I do? McKay hits him in the face at that point or in the head. Um, and then all of that action is off screen and just – I, 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 there's something struck me about McKay knowing where the camera was pointed and he's positioned himself in front of the car, in front of the camera, cooling off and like bending over and, and trying to, to work himself through the situation. He's trying to catch his breath after he gets struck in the groin by Lico Kenny. It seemed like a performance to me. I've definitely never seen someone so cool under, um, these hot circumstances that you can watch in some of these dash cam videos. Um, it, it is it, like, like his voice doesn't crack. He's, he is robotic. Very matter of fact, he is robotic. Yes. Great. Yeah. Great word. So yeah, to me, yes, this guy would probably fit the profile of a psychopathic cop. Right. Not just because of, um, because um, psychopaths are attracted to careers that give them control and power, but also being a cop and especially the way that he was a cop, you, it, you basically separate emotion. It's more clinical than a job like a, like a psychiatrist or a social worker would be. You can separate emotions from the game, but we see that in a very extreme extent in the way that he speaks. Cause like you guys said, he's literally a robot. There's no emotion there. And that is an attractive way to way to speak and be when you're a psychopath. Yeah, it's an even way to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I just think it's interesting that we just decided here, the three of us, that uh, that in this in this triangle of uh, of people shooting at each other, the guy who shoots the cop is probably not the psychopath. He had instances of um, losing his temper and having aggression, mostly within his own family. Like he had feuds where he started chopping up pine trees with the chainsaw and it hit his uncle's roof and then his younger cousin stole his gun and he confronted him in a in a somewhat violent way so this guy was a hothead and he has um a history of aggression but i don't think that it was uh like a, a psychopathy type situation more impulse control issues i think that he had some anger issues um a defiance toward authority and some impulse control problems. I mean, like you said, his family were kind of outcasted in that town when during their first encounter, when Bruce McKay got his license and he read the name, he said, Oh, that's why you have such a bad attitude. Like that's why you're giving me so much attitude. Once he read the name Kenny, because that's, that was the town's perception of that family that they were just, I guess, entitled oddballs. So in episodes of Crawl Space, when and if we do talk about this case, and we probably will, 
Chloe, you had a conversation with Caleb McCauley's mother, Chris. Caleb McCauley was the passenger in the vehicle, um, the one that Greg Floyd told to pick up the gun. Um, You have a lot of good information from her, a lot of good insight. Uh, I think we should really dig deep into that when we we look into this in Crawl Space. Yeah, it was great hearing about this story from, I guess, indirectly from Caleb's perspective, you know, this is his mother, so we get to hear it kind of from a different side of the story. Okay, and that is it. We will be back next week with more Missing Maura Murray. Remember, get a free audiobook with a 30-day trial at audible.com slash Mora. So thank you very much to Audible for the sponsor of this episode, and thank you very much for listening. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.